0: Going to read the whole chapter, Daniel chapter 4. So I will read verses 1 through 18. And then if someone else wants to read 19 to 30, let's see. Someone else 19 to 27, someone else 28 to 33, someone else 34 to the end. Anyone? We'll take
1: the
0: second leg. Second leg. Got Will's it. got third. Now we need a lady. Okay. Elaine's got fourth. Okay. Where am I stopping? 18. 18. All, right. All right. All right. Yep. All right. Daniel chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me, so I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, It's leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches." But leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Uh, 19 through 27.
1: Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, (coughs) was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to the heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, Bound with a band of iron and bronze In the tender grass of the field And let him be wet with the dew of heaven And let his portion be with the beasts of the field Till seven periods of time pass over him This is the interpretation O king It is the decree of the most high Which has come upon my lord the king That you shall be driven from among men And your dwelling shall be With beasts of the field You shall be made to eat grass like an ox And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven And seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the Most High High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it is commanded to leave the stump of of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that, that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity.
2: All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of the twelve months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built, by my mighty power as the royal residence, and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. And you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beast of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was filled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men, and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as... Eagle's feathers and his nails were like birds' claws.
0: At the end of the days, I, my Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay. Can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Good deal. Um, so I've said before, but we see it more clearly when we read the whole chapter that this is King Nebuchadnezzar telling his testimony, essentially. Um, He starts, you know, we see that in verses two and three. Uh, I'm going to tell you how great the wonders of the most high God and uh, what he's done for me, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. And then he starts by telling his testimony. I was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. He's kind of starting with the obstacles that he had to overcome. It's kind of like when we tell our testimony and back when I was in high school, you know, and I was doing all that stupid stuff or whatever we would say, but um, he's essentially doing the same thing. So he's kind of starting out telling of the time when he still wasn't saved. And we see that when he says the spirit of the holy gods is in you. He still doesn't really get it, Uh, but he knows there's something different. We talked about the light and the darkness, you know, even for those that are still unsaved, there's a They're in the presence of God. They know that there is life and light, and yet they're not connecting the dots yet. Um, And we talked about the dangers of prosperity and things like that, he says, because he's presenting his ease and prosperity in his palace as a problem. Um, But we'll move on to that. Verse 5 says that uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. It made him afraid. His vision alarmed him, right? So whatever he saw in this dream. And it made me think of, um, the usefulness of fear in the Christian life. You know, at this point, he's not converted. Uh, so I wouldn't say this is full-blown fear of God yet. But in his fear, he turns to Daniel at last, you know, because he knows that there's something going on there. He thinks it's the spirit of the gods, but it's God. And... um Fear is useful in turning him towards God, at least towards God's people. Uh, you know, it made me think of, I've told you guys before, but just the time in my life leading up to my conversion, there's about a three-year period of overwhelming fear and anxiety, uh, panic attacks, where having these episodes all the time and, and ultimately the climax of a clinical panic attack is you feel like you're about to die. You're having, you know, chest pains and heart's going crazy and your mind's going crazy and you can't stop it i thought i was having heart problems i'd go to the heart doctor they'd say no you don't have any heart problems you have head problems you need to go to the head doctor (laughs) and uh you know but ultimately it's manifesting in this um fear of death and god is using that fear to humble me and turn me towards him and it really ultimately turned into a fear of god i wasn't really afraid to die i was afraid to meet god because I knew I was going to meet God when I died, and I knew it wasn't going to go well for me at that time. But uh, ultimately, you know, remembering the, the usefulness of fear in the Christian life. Proverbs 1 7. Uh, I know you guys are reading the Proverbs a lot with your kids before they go to school, but fear of the Lord is the theme, right? I mean, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and it's not just the beginning. But the fear of the Lord is good throughout our Christian lives. It's, uh, it's a place we want to remain. I looked at a couple different verses. Psalm 112, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and delights in his commandments. And again, that's not just the beginning of life, but all of life. Proverbs 31, which is a familiar chapter, familiar verse. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Acts 9, Paul is converted and then there's a bunch of Jews that want to kill him. And uh, naturally, they're probably a little bit afraid of that. But what the text says right after that is the church throughout all Judea and and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So again, we see the fear of the Lord. It's good all the way through, not just Old Testament, but New Testament. Um, On and on it goes. It's all throughout the scriptures. The fear of the Lord is a place of health, not only at the beginning, but throughout the Christian life. And I, you know, you can't help but think this is foreign in the church today. It's foreign in our church. Uh, Our number one, um, what are they called? We have six little points of emphasis. That's not what we call them, but... You know, the first one is a lofty view of God. We have the biblical family unit. We have the freedom of, of grace or the freedom of conscience or whatever that's called. And um, but a lofty view of God would involve fear of God. You know, the holiness of God and the fear of God. Um, I was thinking about the fact that, and probably for most people in here, most people, and even in our church, are from what we might call a more law centered background in church. Um, whether that was in the Catholic Church or the Baptist Church or the Church of Christ. You know, we all look to those things and say, well, that was a little bit more law-centered and it was about more of what you had to do. And um, now there was fear of God in a lot of those settings, and that was not a bad thing. That was a good thing. The problem was the gospel never got developed as it should have, right? I mean, when we lament those days, we look back and go, Well, the gospel wasn't being articulated. um, But I I think our tendency is to overreact from that over here, to throw out the fear of God and the law and everything that, you know, we didn't get to. We kind of overcorrect. But we know that the law has a wonderful and necessary place in the Christian life. It humbles us. It brings us to fear God. It brings us to realize how far we've fallen short of His glory. So I don't think all the emphasis on the law was really the problem in those traditions. Um, The problem is the gospel didn't get fully developed. If it didn't, I'm not saying it doesn't ever get fully developed in those settings, but for many people's testimony of coming out of something like that, the problem was the gospel not being fully developed in that context against that backdrop. So... But I think back then, you know, one of the blessings that we may swing too far away from is the emphasis on the holiness of God and His justice and judgment, His wrath, which is righteous. You know, who talks about that now? I mean, we're more sophisticated now. We're gospel-centered, you know. And, of course, uh, I'm all for being gospel-centered. But I think much of what passes for being gospel-centered is sub-biblical, because it gets away from um, emphasizing the holiness of God, the fear of God, you know, thinking about our children, and they they are in a very blessed, privileged position to, to hear the gospel from the time they come out of the womb. For those of you that grew up in a Christian home, you know that blessing, but they need to be confronted with the wrath of God at Sodom and Gomorrah. They need to know what sins were committed that, you know, God responded to in that way. They need to be confronted with the holiness of God at Mount Sinai and the fact that the people would not go on the mountain to meet God, but they had to send a mediator in Moses. And um, even in understanding the gospel, when we get to the cross, they need to see the justice of God and the wrath of God that meets the grace and mercy and love of God there. But I just, you know, the good news for so many that came out of what we might call a more legal context, the good news was so good because it was against that backdrop. And if we swing to the other side and don't paint the backdrop, the good news isn't going to be as good, you know you got to know the bad news in order to understand the good news. And I think a lot of times people that grow up in the church are like, yeah, I'm saved, you know. And instead of really understanding something of the, the fear of the Lord is good. One of the things that, as I was thinking about this, I heard Sam pray in our men's board meeting the other day, asking God to give him grace to fear him. And I thought, that's a good prayer, you know. And we don't do that a lot. I mean, to pray that. And that's a... That's a great prayer. Any thoughts about that? Am I overstating it or is that uh, you think that's a overcorrection that we we make? <clears throat> I think so. Well, you prayed it. Where'd that come from? <laughs> I can't
1: remember.
0: <laughs> the spirit. I thought I was
1: kind of interesting that Nebuchadnezzar knew what the prophecy was and what it was going to lead to, and he still had this limp, like time limbo waiting for it to come to fulfillment, and yet his last stand was like, look at the great stuff I did yeah. out of my own might. Yeah. And God was like, all right, done. Uh,
0: but even though he knew what was coming, even though he knew God
1: was going to humble him and he'd already seen Daniel's interpretations come true, he still
2: was building his own case based on his own work.
0: Yeah which is just total depravity, right? I mean, he, God was speaking to him over and over again, and he did not change. Um, he, that's, that's where the
2: prayer
0: came from. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, and so I guess if I'm overstating it, I don't want you to think Nebuchadnezzar was walking in the fear of God here, but I did think that his fear was useful as it continued to turn him back toward at least God's people, but to your point, it didn't. he wasn't changed at this point. And until you truly have the fear of God, your heart will not be changed until God, you know, changes it. But uh, so the next thing in the passage that I think we can see is the persistence of God. And I just thought about the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has already been revealing or God has already been revealing himself to Nebuchadnezzar in the first dream. Uh, and then in the fiery furnace, Right. And every time, there's something about his response is about God. Now, he still thinks he's the holy gods or whatever he thinks, but he is recognizing that Daniel's God is doing something here. And now again, he's got this next dream and the subsequent events after that. So one of the things we see is that God is persistent in His grace. Um, The hound of heaven moving towards the sinner, He moves towards us despite us, even when we Harden our hearts to him. There's a quote by John Calvin on this part, and he said, When God wishes to lead us to repentance, he is compelled to repeat his blows continually, either because we're not moved when he chastises us with his hand, or we seem roused for the time, and then return again to our former torpor or apathy. He is therefore compelled to redouble his blows. Just God continually persisting with us to convict us or humble us, of course, we're thankful on this side for the persistence of God, right? And on that side of things, you, it's inconvenient because you're not able to continue in the way that you're hoping to continue. And again, this isn't just in conversion when God is persistent. I look back on that period of three years where God persisted with me, but He's persistent with us now. We still are wayward and we still turn away from Him and we still grow cold to Him, but He continues to pursue us despite us. Sometimes that looks like discipline. Uh, sometimes it just looks like encouragement when we're down when we got, you know, um, the blues or whatever it is. And, and he is persistent to provide the encouragement that we need when we need it. So I think one of the things we need to think about here in seeing his persistence with Nebuchadnezzar is applying that to uh, those in our life that are lost, you know, family members, friends, or um, co-workers or whatever, those that God has put on our heart. We used to do the six for six, people that we're praying for, six people over six months. Or I haven't heard him mention that in a while, but still a good thing to do, to come up with six people and say, hey, I'm going to pray for these people for the next six months. and um, Or six years, for that matter. Because you think about how long this is going on with Nebuchadnezzar, uh, it says that, there was 12 months past the interpretation of the dream. It says that in, in, at the end of 12 months, verse 29. But, you know, how much time passed from the first dream to building the image? and I mean, this is a few years, right? Where he's seemingly like saying something about God and recognizing and then turning back. And, not, and then seemingly there's this good moment and then he's turning back. And he's proving himself not to be saved. Um, But God is persistent with him even when he keeps turning back over years. So for us, we are praying to God that he would break in, that he, you know, that we're enlisting the hound of heaven, that he would continue to pursue whoever it is. and, And we can't think just because he's not answering in the way that we had hoped or the way we expected that he's not doing anything. We live by faith, not by sight. God is at work answering those prayers, bothering those people, I have no doubt. Um, Intervening like he has here. But it doesn't, you know, in his time, God is patient in his persistence, right? We're not really that patient. Usually we pray once and we think, God, I asked you about this and I'm not seeing anything. Um, But, you know, in his time, Nebuchadnezzar then gets really prideful. Look at all that I've done. And then God opposes him. We're going to talk more about that in a minute. And even that, then God breaks him down, right? Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. And that's God really breaking him down. But even then, I don't think if we're watching this play out, we're going to think that's a man that's about to be saved. I mean, God is really, really doing a mighty work there. We're going to think he's officially flipped his grits. And now all this sin has just taken its toll and he's gone forever. Um, I don't know if you have family members or friends like that, but I do. People that continue to move away from God and, and can, their life continues to break down even worse. But God is at work. Keep, keep after them in prayer and as often as you're able in you know, relationship as well. Same for brothers and sisters in Christ that are wandering away in sin. Nothing to me is more heartbreaking than seeing people from our fellowship that reject um, godly counsel. We're going to talk about that in a minute. but And just persist in sin and don't want to hear it and just keep going. But, you know, God is patient in His persistence. And so can we be. All right. Um, the next thing... Briefly, we can consider the sovereign reign of God over the nations because it's mentioned a couple times in the text. Verse 17 and 26, and I think Clark was reading it, but the the most high rules the kingdom of men. He gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. So no world leader, despite what they think, despite how they think they got there, uh, no world leader arrives at their position by their own power, not Donald Trump, not Kim Jong-un. These are lowly men that God appoints for his purposes. I don't know his purposes. You know, we don't really understand what he's up to, but this is what it was with Nebuchadnezzar. This is what it is in our day. And in the interpretation, Daniel says Nebuchadnezzar, God's about to do some things so that you will know that it is he who sets you in this position, so that, that it is he who has given you all of this glory. And, and he does whatever he wants, not you. And then he gives him some advice in verse 27. He says, break off your sins. What's that mean? Repentance. Here's my advice. Turn away from your sin, O King. Turn to God and humble yourself before Him. If you don't, it's not going to go well for you. That was his message. So I have some homework for you because this got me thinking. Uh, you don't have to turn it in. But read Psalm chapter 2 in conjunction with this section in Daniel 4 where it says Daniel called Nebuchadnezzar to repentance. And then Romans 13, which tells us the same thing that God appoints the the leaders, uh, political leaders, in our land and all lands. Psalm 2, Daniel 4, Romans 13. And ask yourself why we as Christians don't talk this way or even think this way about our city or state or national leaders. Um, This is, you know, whether or not they're Christians, it doesn't matter. We know that God has appointed them. And we have a responsibility to hold them to account. They are ministers of God, whether or not they are saved people. That's what Romans 13 says. They are ministers of God, appointed by God to administer justice, uh, to punish with the sword, to keep things in bounds, And um, we see here one of the people of God speaking to them submissively and yet authoritatively. You know, humbly and yet confidently. Repent. You're going to need to turn away from this. I mean, this is not going to go well for you. You're opposing God who has appointed you to this position. So again, um, Psalm 2, Daniel 4, Romans 13 and ask yourselves, where has this gone? I mean, is this, this is actually a great part of obviously the biblical heritage. We see this even in the New Testament uh, with the apostles. And this is a part of our Reformation heritage. I just got out of a Reformation class. But there was a much bigger um, room in their theology for this kind. They had the doctrine of the lesser magistrates, which just understanding this, that the people that are in government positions have been put there by God. And they spoke to them. They were never in positions of power, you know. But they spoke to them powerfully, humbly. But humbly, we beseech you, turn to God. He's the one that's put you there. You know, sometimes not as humbly. I mean, you read John Knox and the way that he spoke to Bloody Mary, and but he was he was holding her accountable to her position before God. And uh, I just think that's a, a far cry from where we are today. Anyway, something to think about. Psalm 2, Daniel 4, Romans 13 might be an interesting study. All right, so at this point in his life, did Nebuchadnezzar heed Daniel's call to repentance? No. Twelve months go by, and uh, he gets more prideful, and he forgets whatever happened in these experiences where God was near, and he's on his palace, and he says, Look at all that I've done. So that's, and as soon as he says it, that's when God meets him and, and takes away all that glory and even takes away his sanity and he loses his mind. So one of the things that we see here is the devastation of rejecting godly counsel. Daniel told him to repent. He didn't repent and the devastation ensued. He lost his mind. That, you know, maybe you think like, what happened? Did he turn into an animal? No, he's just, he lost his mind. He stopped caring for himself. His hair grew really long. He didn't cut his fingernails. He's, he's crazy. He's eating grass. He's out you know, in the field. And they're like this king. And all of a sudden, he should be in a mental institute. That's what's happened to him. Because sin has consequences. And you know, we can't manage our disobedience to God. We think we can. And God is patient in His time. But sometimes God brings the hammer. And it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Of the living God. Um, Sometimes he takes it all away, including your sanity. It's devastating to listen, not listen to godly counsel. One of the things, um, and this is just something, I guess you see it a lot in my position, but you guys have been through this too. And, you know, maybe we're going to have our day where a cloud of... uh, sin and a lack of discernment comes upon us, and, and we're not seeing things clearly, and we're all wrapped up in following our feelings and not following God's Word, and, and there's going to be brothers and sisters that have to come to us and say, hey, we love you, you know we love you, but please, stop doing what you're doing. Stop going this way, it's not a good way, it's not going to go well, and uh, if that ever happens, Listen. It may not even come across right, but just listen. It is so heartbreaking to see people reject godly wisdom and counsel. It is because you know it's coming. It's going to be devastating. It's not going to be good. And uh, all that is is pride, and we know God hates pride. He opposes the proud. And uh, we see his opposition to to Nebuchadnezzar's pride here when, you know, he says, look what I've done, and God shuts him up. And uh, God's going to teach him that everything he had, every bit of power and position and glory came from God and, and not from him. If we don't humble ourselves before God, he will humble us. And uh, obviously all of our humility has come from God as grace, but there are times when we ought to heed the call to humble ourselves. And uh, anyway, any thoughts about that? All right, I got a couple things to end, and then I know you'll be gathering your thoughts. Uh, the, the last part is just, this is a very hopeful ending. I mean, it doesn't always go this way, but we do see redemption in Nebuchadnezzar's life. We see restoration in his life. First, the restoration of reason. Verse 36 says, at the same time that he repented, his reason returned. So this story strikes a chord with me because I, though I did not fully lose my mind in my rebellion, I've told you before, um, I mean, I did keep getting haircuts and biting my fingernails, but uh, I know what it's like to be on the verge of losing your mind, um, to feel like the next stop is the mental institute and uh, to have been going to a... Uh, mind head doctor, you know, and he can't help me. Um, and, but God in that brought me to fear him. And he was persistent in his grace toward me because in all of that fear, and it wasn't all fear of God. A lot of it was just fear of, you know, what might happen uh, to me, but he brought me to repentance and uh, in his time in his patience and forbearance with me. And when I repented, my reason was restored to me. Um, It's really remarkable the kind of transformation God did overnight. He doesn't always work this way, but he certainly did with me. And uh, one application I would make to this is to say, um, and this is not to say that all mental illness is as a consequence to sin. I don't believe that. I think that would be careless to say that. I also do believe there's an important place for medicine, medicine, in uh, certain cases of mental illness. But I think we tend to wax and wane between one end of the spectrum and the other. On the one hand, many in the church can be simplistic and careless and think there's never a place for medicine, um, you know, and just let go and let God. And then on the other hand, uh, there are those, there are Christians, there are pastors even, that, that would never think of seeking God in these types of situations. You know, we just need to get our medicine and get to the therapist and Take care of it that way. And, uh, but here in this passage, we at least are confronted with the fact that God brought restoration of reason and sanity to a man who had clinically gone insane. He was out with the beasts eating grass. He stopped caring for himself. He was like a homeless crazy guy. And, uh, and God intervened and brought restoration of sanity. So at least I would say that we should consider this as a part of our uh, even our initial response to such cases, whether uh, in ourselves or with family and friends and, and that sort of thing. All right, last thing, we not only see the restoration of reason, but we see the restoration of Nebuchadnezzar's whole life. I'm going to read um, 36 and 37. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me, My counselors and my Lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. He got his life back, right? Uh, Everything was the same, really. His counselors come back, and, and yet nothing was the same because he was a changed man. This is the way it always is, is in conversion, is we have to lose our lives in order to find it. And uh, I think for so many, and you know, that's the scary part, is the loss. There's always going to be a death before there's a resurrection. Uh, I was listening to Pastor Myron from Innovation tell his testimony yesterday. And it's a powerful story, but that's essentially you know, what happened. And it's right where you have to trust God is everything that I've been putting my trust in has to go and it all has to go before God, and it's a death of sorts, and whatever he gives back, that's what he gives back. We're not guaranteed what he's going to give back, but in Myron's case, he gave it all back, and then some. You know, um, it's uh, remarkable, and it's the same thing with with um, Nebuchadnezzar, and not only in conversion, but also throughout the Christian life. I mean, there are Those of you, Will and Elaine, they're going to Costa Rica for the first time. You feel like you've got to put it all on the altar. You know? It's like, we're not sure how this is going to go. But we feel like God's calling us to this. And so we're just going to give it all to Him. And there may be times in our lives where He asks us to give more in a more costly way than we even gave in our conversion. Because it was pretty routine in, in the grand scheme of things. Um... But we know that God works in this death and resurrection. We have to remember in those times that uh, God is trustworthy, that He will return it to you a hundredfold, whether in this life or in the next. Again, we're not guaranteed we're going to get it all back in this life. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we can see, returning to my former glory, and even then some. He had an even greater kingdom after this. But, you know, there are many that give it to God in this way, and He doesn't return it until glory. But he's, they're going to get it returned to them um, a hundredfold. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your word, which is living and active and uh, powerful. It is true. It never changes. It changes us, and Lord, we see it is also very relevant to our own day. Lord, we pray, along with Sam, that you would unite our hearts to fear your name. Teach us, teach our church, teach our children the fear of the Lord. Might we know, as the first church knew, um, the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit at the same time. Lord, we thank you for your persistence. Your grace and mercy to us. Thank you for always pursuing us despite us, both when we were saved and even now as we continue to grow. Lord, we confess that we often turn away from you. We often um, resist your promptings in our consciences, but you are persistent and we are thankful. Please, God, remain with us. Lord... Thank you um, for bringing us to new life. Thank you for showing us this redemption and restoration in some measure. And we know, Lord, that there is so much more to come, that we've only had a foretaste. Teach us to put it all on the altar. Teach us to give it all to you over and over again, trusting uh, that you will return what we need and ultimately what we are promised in glory is more than we can even imagine. Thank you for these brothers and sisters in our time together, and we do pray in Christ's name. Amen.